This morning is part two. It's connected to last week's message. Some of you were here. Some of you were at home. We're talking about things to avoid in 2024, at a time of year where we're thinking about changes that may need made in our lives, things to avoid in 2024. I know some of you were at home on your couches. I even saw someone bring a pillow in here this morning. I trust that was only for sitting on here. If we hear snoring, we might have to come tap on you. Things to avoid in, in 2024. It's amazing how even when we know what needs to change, we can always come up with a rationalization not to, right? I, I saw something this week that said I was going to give up all my bad habits for the new year. But then I remembered no one likes a quitter. <laughs> Last week we talked about the first four of seven woes that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We're going to look at the last three today. And as we see the things he, he challenged them on, they're good challenges for us too. If we see any of these things in our lives, we want to bring them before the Lord and say, help me change, Lord. Over and over, he called them what? You remember an H word? Hypocrites. In the Greek language, it referred to actors who wore masks in plays, people who pretended to be one thing but were really another. And I want to talk for a moment just briefly about hypocrisy, what it is not and what it is. Hypocrisy is not sinning, repenting, and seeking to do better. Okay, we all find ourselves there right throughout this life. Hypocrisy is sinning, pretending as though you're righteous, and continuing on down the same path of sin. You know who really picks up on this stuff? Kids. Kids do. A man named Spiros Zodiates shared a story about a man and his son that went to church one Sunday. And he said, the man fussed about the sermon on the way home, he fussed about the traffic, fussed about the heat, got home, and he fussed that his wife was late in bringing the lunch out. Then he bowed his head to thank God for the food. Little boy looked at his dad, said, Daddy, did God hear you when we left the church and you started fussing about everything? Dad blushed a little, said, well, yes, son, he heard me. Well, Daddy, did God hear you when you thanked him for the food? Yes. And the boy looked at his dad and said, which one does God believe? Which one does God believe? You hear that and you say, how, how do we steer clear of this kind of hypocrisy? And I'm going to use two car terms. How many of you love cars, working on cars? I see a few hands in here. I'm talking to the young drivers too. These are two terms you need to keep in mind. As, as we look through the last three woes, I want you to remember these two car ideas. The first one is pop the hood. And I'm talking to the young people especially. Our son just started driving. Stetson just got his license. I know there are some others just about ready to start. Pop the hood. I say that because I remember when I was young, you know what I looked at most? I looked at the paint 
what color it was. Was it, was it shiny? How's that radio sound? Does it have good bass? You know, I looked, does it have a sunroof? All that stuff. I want to tell you something. Don't just focus on the outside as you're looking for that car. You better get someone, if you don't know what's going on under the hood, to pop that hood and see what that engine is like. Because it's that engine inside that really matters. The Pharisees needed to pop the hood on their lives and get an honest evaluation of what was going on inside. And that leads to woe number five. My summary of it is Jesus was saying to them, you pretend to be clean, but you're greedy. You're greedy on the inside. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and and self-indulgence. The picture is obvious, right? He's saying you're clean outside, but you're, you're dirty inside. And I want you to look at that, that plate there. Let's say you're at Applebee's this afternoon, and after you eat a few bites of your food, you, you, you see that underneath. How do you, how do you feel about it? <laughs> I hear grossed out. You're not going to say, well, the outside was clean, so no big deal, right? It's disgusting. It could mean that the inside of the plate was dirty like that. Some scholars have said this could also mean that the food inside of the Pharisees' plates that they ate was purchased with funds gotten through their greed and their self-indulgence. They lean that way because of what Luke said in chapter 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What does it mean that they devoured widows' houses? Jesus doesn't explain here. Could it be that they pretended to care for needy widows while while stealing their resources? Could it be that they pretended to care for them while pressuring them to give over and above what was reasonable for them? Verse 26, he says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Solution here, pop the hood. Listen, if we're believers and and we're wondering if there's anything going on like that inside, invite the Savior to use the scalpel of the Scriptures inwardly. Get alone with Him and say, do your work in me. What am I talking about? Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning not just the actions, the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Read his word and say, do your surgery in me, Savior. Now I think about that, and let's be honest. How many of you like surgery? When you're just like, hey, I got surgery this week. All right. Why do we do it? 
Why would someone with cancer trust a complete stranger to use a razor-sharp tool on them? Because they know that cancerous tumor needs removed if they're going to be whole again. Same with the, the Word of God. To sit down before Him and say, God, you're no stranger. If you're a believer, you can say, you're my Father. I trust you. Please lovingly use the scalpel of the Scriptures to remove any thought, any intention, any attitude within me that does not please you. That is not good for me. I want to be whole again. Take some time this week and and do that. If you're an unbeliever, what's that look like? If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, it looks like letting the blood of the, the Son cleanse you from the inside out by putting your faith in the Son this morning. Listen to the good news in Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. Down to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Have you trusted in the Savior that He might cleanse you from the inside out? That's the step the unbeliever needs to take. What about the believer? The Spirit's working right now, showing you something inside. Confess that sin and restore that close fellowship you used to have with the Father. Listen, it's not just academic with God. It's relational. You know how I know that? Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When we sin, we grieve the heart of a Father who loves us. We grieve the Son. We grieve the Spirit who lives within us. Ask Him, is there any place where I'm grieving you this morning? And then 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's that mean, believer? You may have come in here feeling far away from God because you're cherishing that sin. You could leave in close fellowship again if you lay it down and confess it this morning. Let me get more specific. Maybe the greed issue that they had going on is something in our lives. We have to ask the question, have I allowed money to become more important than God in my life? Have I allowed money to become more important than people? If greed is an issue you're battling right now, listen to God's heart in Ephesians 4.28. It's not just don't be greedy. There's that side. Let the thief no longer steal. But there's something to turn to. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, and he goes on so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't just stop doing the bad stuff. I got something good for you, right? Back on football, what do they say the best defense is? A good offense, right? So here's what I'm thinking, right? Greed is an issue. God, please transform me from a grifter to a giver. Show me someone this week who is in need that you would like me to help and help me get this turned around. 
in my life. Woe number six. Another reason they needed to pop the hood. You pretend to be beautiful, but you're lawless on the inside. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What's he talking about there with these whitewashed tombs? It was a common practice in Israel at the time to, to put white paint on tombs, especially as people traveled into Jerusalem for Passover. Why? Because they wanted to alert the travelers, do not walk here. There are dead people here. If you walk here, you will become unclean. So they put this nice white paint on the outside when all the while this picture represents what's on the inside. Dead people's bones, right? What's his application for the Pharisees? Verse 28, he says, so you also, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now catch what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He's saying not only does your inward lawlessness contaminate you, it contaminates the people who look up to you and follow you. It is spreading. It is contagious. Right? Solution again? Pop the hood. If you sense you've got some of that rebellion against God going on inside, though you put on a good show outside. I love the prayer in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a vulnerable place, right? But you're doing it before a Father who loves you and seeks not only His own glory, but, but a wholesome life for you. Now, he said they were full of lawlessness. Hard to explain how that would have shocked the ears of those Pharisees and the listeners because the Pharisees claimed to keep God's law better than anyone. They looked down on everybody else because they didn't do it as well in their mind. Why did Jesus say that? Because it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart with God. Matthew 15, 7, he had said to them earlier, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is, is far from me. You know, in terms of a marriage, this is the, the husband that comes home with an anniversary card for his wife, but he's got some other lady's lipstick on his cheek. That, that's what's going on between the Pharisees and God. Full of lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. Dave's been talking to me about this the past couple weeks, and it's a pertinent verse here. Sin is lawlessness. That's what 1 John 3, 4 says. What does lawlessness mean? It doesn't mean there are no commands. It doesn't even necessarily mean that I sin outwardly in a way that other people see. It speaks of a heart inside that rebels against God's commands. 
It's the idea that Paul brings out in Ephesians. That prior to Christ, we are dead in our sins, in our transgressions. But what's the solution for the Pharisees and anyone else who finds themselves in this boat? Trust in the Son of God who kept the law perfectly and walk according to the Spirit of God who lives within the believer. I get that right out of Romans 8, verse 3. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you say, I've trusted the Son, but what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Well, first it means realizing He lives in you, believer. The Spirit of God lives in you. But you still got a choice to make every day. Am I going to walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? And I like the way Douglas Moo broke this down. He said, to walk according to the flesh is to have one's life determined and directed by the values of this world in rebellion against God. It's a lifestyle that is purely human in its orientation. Believer, you could choose that on the way out the door today. I'm going to continue walking according to the flesh. Or we can choose to walk according to the Spirit. He says to walk according to the Spirit is to live under the control and according to the values of the new age created and dominated by God's Spirit. Which am I walking in this morning, the flesh or the Spirit? And I like to remind people, I, I believe in the statement, I think it's been well said, that the Spirit of God will not do your part. And you cannot do His part. You say, what's my part? What's my part as a believer? To surrender in faith and choose the right path. That, that's your part. What's his part? To give you the desire and the power to carry it out. He will not do your part. Some of us have been sitting at a crossroad of sin just waiting for God. And it really, sometimes he's waiting on you. He's waiting on me to choose and say, I will surrender to your plan. I want to follow you. I think about the Spirit's power that He gives us and the desire to do what's right. So much greater than the law. Think of an old poem said it this way, To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You say, what are those wings? The wings are the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you and me, believer. It's the wings that come with the new covenant Jeremiah spoke of in chapter 31. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. How? Because he's in there. The Spirit dwells within us. He also creates a love for Jesus within the believer. He always lifts Jesus up. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the Spirit who creates and fans that, that love within us. 
And I want to share something here that somebody needs to hear, because I don't know what kind of church you grew up in. Serving God may strike you as a drudgery, depending on what kind of place you grew up in. Did you know that, that the believer can actually find great joy in following God's commands? It doesn't have to be a bah humbug kind of life. How do I know that? Just a quick perusal through the Psalms. Psalm 1-2 speaks of the righteous man. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Have you ever connected those two words together? Delight in God's commands. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He can't get enough. Right? What about Psalm 40 verse 8? I delight to do your will. Oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Could we say that this morning? Psalm 119.70. I like this one. This is so picturesque. It says, their heart is unfeeling like fat. (laughs) Their heart doesn't feel anything. It's like a big glob of fat. But I delight in your law. Following God's commands can be a delight when it's done out of love and in the power of the Spirit. As we head to the third and final woe, I want to talk to you about a second car term. Check your blind spot. When Jaden was first learning, I can't tell you how many times we told him that because we live in Viewpoint and you got to merge on 89A there. From the very first time we went, went out with him, we tell him over and over, as you merge on there, some of these people are crazy. Okay? Don't just look at your mirror. Make sure you turn around. Make sure nobody's there. Check your blind spot. Make sure there's nothing there that's going to take you out. The Pharisees had a huge blind spot. They needed to check. This is the final woe. Woe number seven. You pretend to honor God's word, but you persecute his prophets. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You make them look all nice. I don't know if it's Jeremiah or David or who, but you guys fancy them all up. And as you do, you say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Really? Really? Do, do their present actions against Jesus back that up? We'll talk about that more in a moment, but for, for now, I just want to say this. It is easy, so easy to harp on the sins of past generations and be totally blind to our own. That happens a lot in America these days. Happens a lot. Verse 31, he says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And they were not only biological sons, they were acting like their fathers this very week as they plotted Jesus' death. Verse 32, he says, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you servants, you brood of vipers. When you think about serpents and vipers, we know a couple things about vipers. They're, they're venomous. They're, they're full of venom. And you think about a brood of vipers, you know what happens 
within a month after they're born, they, they, they go out and they start looking for prey from insects up to birds in those early days. You think about the Pharisees always looking for someone to devour. They, they love to fight. You see them circling around Jesus time and time and time again to quarrel. And listen, I want to challenge our church. Let's not be like Pharisees. They love to fight. Do we love to fight? Is that our disposition? We wake up in the morning thinking about, who am I going to quarrel with today? Who am I going to lock this, this target on and light them up? Who's it going to be? Do we love to fight? Rather, I think it's the, the followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be those, not who love to fight, but those who fight to love. Fight our own flesh and our own selfishness. Say, Lord, help me love that person next to me. They love to fight. And they're full of them. He looks at him and says, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, some scholars have brought out picture in Israel at this time would likely have been of a farmer. You know what they did when it was time to reset the field? Burn it. And it probably wouldn't be uncommon as, as that field burned to see animals trying to get out of the way, perhaps a viper trying to get out of its hole. And it would not be uncommon for the heat and the speed of that fire to overtake that viper. That's the picture here, I believe. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And listen, if you hear nothing else this morning and you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, I want to share this with you out of love. The ultimate danger of hypocrisy is that if it's never brought to Jesus for healing and forgiveness, hypocrisy is a highway to hell. It's a highway to hell. But you know what amazes me about Jesus, about God? He still loved these Pharisees. Verse 34, he says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes over and over throughout their past history and even into the book of Acts as we see. God sent person after person after person. He's not willing that any should perish. But what, what's their response? He says, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Think about Jesus himself, right? Some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Think about Saul's rampages in the book of Acts before he converted to Christ. Verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Think about Cain and Abel right way back in Genesis. To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That one happened near the end of Old Testament history. What's he saying? All that blood from the beginning of the Old Testament period to the end is on you. And you say, why? Why, Jesus? Because the Pharisees, along with Herod and the Gentile Pilate, would kill Christ, the Son of God, the one that whole Old Testament pointed to. Just days later, before Pilate, it would come out of their own mouths. Matthew 27, 25. His blood be on us. 
and on our children. Verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. They said they would never treat the prophets of God like their ancestors, all while plotting the death of the Son of God. And Jerusalem would be destroyed as a result in A.D. 70. Solution for them, solution for us, if we find ourselves there today, they needed to check their blind spot. How does Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 3? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The picture would be humorous if it were not so tragic. Picture someone carrying a telephone pole and walking up to Amber here. And you got a little something in your eye. What are you going to say? you got a telephone pole in yours, right, buddy? So easy to do, though. They needed to check their blind spot. They needed to listen to the son who was standing right in front of them. This is what he said to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud, the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. How tragic that they were face to face with Him. And yet many of them rejected Him. You hear Jesus' own grief and love, starting in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. There's a storm coming. There's a fox coming. Come here, babies. I said, I wanted to gather you, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, there's future hope. That we'll touch on in the weeks to come. Verse 39, he says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That speaks to a future day of hope. But for today, as we close these two weeks with the seven woes, I want to review them quickly and ask you what they all have in common. What's the common thread? And granted, these are my summaries of the woes, but you tell me what they all have in common. Woe number one. You pretend to bring people to God, but in reality, you push them away. Woe number two, you pretend to make children of God, but in reality, you make children of hell. Woe number three, you pretend to care about your promises, but in reality, you play stupid games with the truth. Woe number four, you pretend to be holy, but you miss the heart. You major on the minors and minor on the majors. Woe number five, you pretend to be clean, but are greedy. On the inside, number six, you pretend to be beautiful but are lawless on the inside. Woe number seven, you pretend to honor God's word, but you persecute his prophets. What's the common thread? Yes, hypocrisy, pretending, pretending. That was the big problem. I want to talk to the young people in the room again. Kids, do you like it when you're at school and there's someone that, that's pretending to be someone they're not, one of the other students? Like maybe they act one way when they're alone with you, but you get in a crowd and they, they treat you different. I don't. 
I don't. When I was in school, we called kids like that posers. Some of you in my generation remember that name. We don't like that when other people pretend. But let me ask us all a question. Ask us to be honest with ourselves. How many of us are often tempted to pretend ourselves? To pretend around those around us. What's the ultimate solution to all of this? Well, to admit this morning, I'm pretending. I've been pretending. And get real. Admit I'm blind that I might see. Admit I am unclean if I haven't come to the Savior that you may come to Him and be cleansed. I think about this cleansing and I think about how Jesus mentioned the the blood of Abel. Reminded me of a word to believers in Hebrews 12.24. He says to believers, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Better word than the blood of Abel. Let's unpack this. What, what word did Abel's blood cry out? Guilty. Guilty. What word did Jesus' blood cry out for all who receive him by faith? Forgiven. Forgiven. His blood speaks a better word. I love the old hymn, just one stanza. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you trusted Jesus who spilled his blood for your cleansing? Closing question. I want to get to the heart of pretending. I want to get to the heart of the matter. Why are we tempted to pretend? Why do we pretend? I think it comes down to what we perceive to be the purpose of our lives. What do you perceive to be the purpose of of your life? Why are you alive? Why do you do the things you do? I ask that because Luke 7.30 says something very interesting about the Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They rejected God's purpose for their lives. Why did they reject God's purpose for themselves? I believe it was because they had their own purposes. I believe their purpose for many of them was to promote their own glory. We saw it in Jesus' own words. They loved the places of honor. They did long prayers in front of people. And on and on and on. The purpose of many of their lives was to promote their own glory. Is that yours this morning? Promote your own glory? If it is, then guess what? You will use whatever platform God has given you to protect your pride. And you know what that often means? It means pretending. It means pretending. What's God's purpose for your life and mine? It is to promote His glory. Is that your purpose, to promote God's glory? Then guess what? You will use whatever platform God has given you to proclaim the proficiency of Christ. 
whether your platform is one of pain or prestige. I think of pain, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you know the story. He was paralyzed in a diving accident at age 17. Went through all the, the desperation that would come in a young person's life at that time and finally found there must be more than just living and breathing. And she met Jesus. And for decades now, she's been traveling the world as a paralyzed woman, sharing the hope that Jesus has brought to her, encouraging others in their own trials. But she's not afraid to admit her weakness. I love this. I saw an interview with her recently where she said, a lot of people come up to me all the time and say, you know what, you're so strong, Johnny. And you know what she told that person? She said, I'm not strong. She said, I'm weak. I wake up almost every morning feeling like I don't have what it takes to get through the day ahead. And you know what I do? I take that before my father and I say, I don't have what it takes, Father, but you do. May your strength flow through me that I might proclaim your hope in your life. She wasn't ashamed to admit her weakness because her life is about proclaiming the proficiency of Christ. But I said whether it's pain or prestige, and I think about prestige, I think about someone I'm going to put on screen in just a moment. Don't put it up there yet, but quarterback on the Houston Texans, C.J. Stroud. Yeah, he's the one that whooped my Browns yesterday, 45-17. to 17. But I like him for two reasons. A, he, he's a Buckeye. B, far more importantly, I want you to see what he said in an interview before that game. And I have it here. I don't know if you can read that. He's got his Jesus shirt on. And he said, as a rookie in the NFL, likely to win the rookie of the year this year because he's had a great year. He said, Jesus laid his life on the cross for us. I really believe that. This is bigger than just football. Football is my platform. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ is my purpose. You know what else I love? I love that the mic in that picture is pointed right at Jesus' mouth on his shirt. I love that. Now, I'd love to say that before the game yesterday, I was rooting for him. I was not. I was saying things like, hey, you can share the gospel even in defeat and humility. But I will tell you today, for the rest of the playoffs, I'm rooting for this guy in the Texans. And I think about what he said there, and I want to ask us a question as we close. What platform has God given you in your home, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school? Maybe your platform is a trial. Maybe it's something you're good at. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's popularity. Listen, what if we adopted this mindset this year that whatever our platform, May 2024 be the year where we stop pretending and protecting our pride. May 2024 be the year where we start proclaiming the proficiency of our Christ. May 2024 be the year where we give Jesus the microphone in our lives. Let's pray. Father, this passage is uncomfortable. But I know these words 
of conviction were spoken from a heart of love that longed to gather those, even those leaders under your wings. Heart of love that would go to a cross just days later to die for their sins and ours today. Lord, I pray that you'd work in this room. If there are any unbelievers who, who are saying, I've been pretending, I've been looking everywhere else. I thought, thought it was about my glory and I'm empty and hollow. Bring them to the foot of the cross this morning. Where they can meet a Savior. Where they can find cleansing and forgiveness and new life. And for those of us believers who have been around the block a few times, may your spirit work. May you remind us that your conviction is, is not to lead to condemnation or, or evil in our lives. It is not only for, for your glory, but for our good. Search us. Remove the pretending. And use us to boldly proclaim the proficiency of Jesus Christ in all we think and say and do. In Jesus' name.